Thank you, Tamsin and worship team, for leading us this morning. You've done a great job. It's nice to have a second service. After the first one, I, we used to, in France, I would speak in the morning, and then had all afternoon to prepare again to fix the message before. So I didn't have much time, just the coffee break, but we'll see if it's better the second time around. Always good to be able to have that little breathing time. It's been great to study the Old Testament and the legacies. Oh, and kids, you have your packages up here. You want to come up here so that you have something to do during the service and can pretend to listen to me. And I see some older teens going, yes, I can join them. You can sneak up too. It's okay. Have your little brother and sister pick you up one. It's been great to study the Old Testament and the legacies, to learn what it is about to live a life of faith uh, and to put that together today. It's been great how God has protected these legacies, to hear about the stories of how people survived and lived when life happens, because life does happen. And sometimes we're in situations that are really, really hard, and we didn't do anything to get ourselves there. Now, I'm not talking about the situation like one of our deacons had one day, when we see the blue lights following him into the church parking lot because he was late teaching a Sunday school class, and they followed him right in and gave him the ticket right in the church parking lot. We didn't let him forget that either. (laughs) I'm not talking about those kinds of things. But what I am saying is sometimes life, we're in a situation that's just hard. My dad grew up in a a little Italian village above Amalfi where kind of everybody lives together. Your whole family lives together. Nice place. If you're a little kid, you are just loved on by everybody. Ends up coming here to America when he's about six years old. And during World War II, he's out in the desert of North Africa with one other guy in a cement building running all these generators and code things and keeping airplanes going where they're supposed to go with a bag of hand grenades on the wall and a sign above it that said, if you can't defend, destroy. And he said to me many times, he goes, I often wondered, how did my mother's little kid get in that situation? It was a life situation. He, he did nothing to get himself there. In fact, he probably did everything else to get himself out of there. But there he was, doing his job, what he was called to do. And if it came to pass, he had to destroy. And he wondered about that. And sometimes we're in those life situations that are above and beyond our personal situations, our personal responsibility. And I think it helps us to look at the legacies of how people have done it before, how they have lived a life of faith. Because life does happen. I like the slogan that Hope Chapel has that says, and it's on the front of your bulletin, the golden ticket, as we were told today, that when faith meets life, hope happens. When faith meets life, hope happens. And yes, we're told by the historians and by great speakers that those who do not study history are condemned to repeat it. So it's good for us to study history. But sometimes when we look at these Old Testament legacies or we read them out of a children's Bible story book, because it said it's a Bible story, it's a story book, we think it's a story. We think it's a novel. We think it's like a beach novel that you're reading for the summer. It's not. These are true reports of real flesh and blood people that had blood going through their veins, that got scared and were nervous and fearful. And they're just like you and I. But how did they respond in those situations? Well, today we're going to take a look at Esther, the legacy of her. And I'd ask you to pick up a pew Bible 
And if you are, look it up, and it's page 418. Even though we don't have pews, we have chairs. I still call them pew Bibles. 418. And if you're using another Bible, you might want to pick one up. I'm going to ask us to read together a couple portions of Scripture together. So page 418. Let me give you the setting. The setting is 486 to 465 B.C. We're in the city of Susa. Now, Susa is one of the oldest cities in the world. 5,000 years before Christ, there was a big, huge city there. It was a capital city, a couple of rivers going there, great trade routes. It was in Persia, which is now Iran. This beautiful capital city. The nation of Israel were taken in exile. They were taken and pulled out of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and the learned people were brought to live around Susa. The kings put them to work. But by now, they were allowed to go back. The exile was over. They were free. They could go back. And yet, some of them stayed. Now, God's plan was for them to always go back. Always to go back. That is always the rule of God. Go back for the nation of Israel. Many of them decided not to go back. So there was a remnant still living in Susa. And so here they were. The king was King Ahasuerus. That's his name in Hebrew. Now, some of you might know his Persian name, which is Xerxes. So you have, that's why Bibles have two different names for the king. It's because some Bibles translate the Hebrew name. Some Bibles use the Persian name. He ruled from 486 to 465 BC, and his kingdom was vast and wealthy. Talks about 127 provinces that he had. He had many different languages to deal with. And we're going to read a little bit about the opulence that was there and the riches that he had. Let's read together from Esther chapter 1. We're going to read together from verse 1 through verse 8. And if we get to a word you can't say, I couldn't say in first service, so let's see how we do second service. Chapter 1. Let's read it together. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linens were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. Beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely, according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. Take a look at the wealth that was there. Mother of pearl, gold couches, 
gold and silver couches, mosaic pavement, white linen, marbles. It was incredible. That was his third year of his reign. He had just gotten started. And look at all the wealth he had. And then the wine that was served. Can you imagine 180 days getting together with all your leaders and elected officials and all the armies? Had a party for 180 days. And then because the town put up with 180 days of partying, he gave them seven days. And then he says to the wine stewards, who their job was to make sure nobody drank too much, kind of like they took their tips class if you're a bartender and made sure that you served correctly. And that's what they were supposed to do. But here he said, no, don't hold back. Let them drink as much as they want. I can't imagine what that party looked like after seven days. Well, the king also has a queen. Her name is Vashti, and it says that she was a beautiful woman. And the queen, in verse 9 we read, also gave a feast for the women of the king's palace. Normal decorum was a party was given for the guys, a party was given for the ladies, and they didn't get together. I don't quite understand that, but we'll just leave it there. All right? And uh, so that she was giving a party. And it says on the seventh day in verse 10 of chapter one, on the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, guess we can figure out what he was feeling, as Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bithsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Agatha, Zethar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and to the officials because she was very beautiful. Now, if we look at that request, the way it's written, we kind of find, well, he just wanted to bring in the queen to show off to all his guys. The only problem was, if we look at how it was really written, she's only supposed to show up, most of the commentators say, in her crown. That's it. So the queen says, look in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. What does the king do? He becomes furious and his anger burned within him. The feast was going on for seven days, 180 days of partying, and the queen is supposed to be brought into this party. Now, the queen is supposed to be respected. She's supposed to be above all other people. The king is supposed to treat her with respect, and yet he really doesn't because he wants to show off his pride. He wants to show off his wealth. He wants to show off her beauty. And she makes a choice that says, I'm not doing that. I would say that's a wise choice. She made sure she was respected. The king then has no idea what to do. Kind of hard for me to figure out that this is a king over all this wealth, over all these provinces. He has no clue what to do. So he gathers his wise counselors. And it says in verse 16, one of the counselors says this in chapter 1. Memucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women, cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. What's the wise men really interested in? What are their wives going to say to them when they go home? (laughs) What's in this for me? King, if you allow her to do that, my wife is going to say no to me at any time. That's what they're... So listen, king, this is what you do. Now this one, 
I can't imagine that these are the wise people. It says this in verse 19. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Now, you have to remember this. If a law goes into their rule book and the king signs it with his seal, with his ring, that was the seal that he used. That would be like his signature. It, that rule could not be changed. It couldn't be changed by any other legislative body. It couldn't be changed by the king himself. The rule would stand. So he makes the rule, and it says this. Queen Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and a royal position is to be given another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all the women will honor their husbands from the least to the greatest. This will solve the problem. When I go home, my wife is going to listen to me because Queen Vashti will be not able to see you king anymore. Isn't this a great idea? Well, probably was until the king got lonely or wanted to see her. And so then they figured out, well, we've got to have a solution. We've got to have a beauty contest for another queen. So we find out in chapter 2, the king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for a beautiful young woman for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of the kingdom so that they may assemble all the beautiful young women to the harem at the fortress of Susa. And at this point, we're introduced to another character in the story, in the report. His name is Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was an exiled Jew. He came out of Jerusalem. He was taken away. He was brought to Susa to live and to work. And that's what he had to do. Now, he was then allowed to go back, but he didn't. For whatever reason, he stayed at Susa. So he's part of the nation of Israel, not really obeying what the nation should have done at that point. But he's there. And it says this in chapter 2, verse 5. We are introduced to Mordecai, this Jew, and his cousin, Esther. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jehoiakimani of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah was her Persian name, Esther was her Jewish name, because she didn't have a father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Last week, we took a look at Ruth, and Ruth was taking care of her mother-in-law, her husband had passed away. She was taking care of her mother-in-law, went to live with her mother-in-law's people, and there was a kingsman redeemer. If your brother died, you were supposed to come alongside and marry his, his wife, a kingsman redeemer. Boaz was the second one in line. Here, it's the same type of thing for an orphan. There was supposed to be somebody in the family that would be taking over. Mordecai was the older cousin of Esther, and he took her into his home. And it said he took her in as a daughter and loved her as a daughter. Now, I'm sure there were some places where that situation wasn't as good. But for her, it was very good. And Mordecai took care of her. And he took her as her own daughter. Now, Esther, it says, was beautiful. She had a fine figure. She was a beautiful woman. And there she was in the palace of Susa. She had probably never been to Jerusalem. She had probably lived at Susa her whole life. 
But again, she was from the nation of Israel. Esther has to report to the palace and is part of the beauty pageant. Now, some may say she didn't have to go. Mordecai could have said no, not allowed her to go. But here's a girl who lost her parents, lived with this older cousin, who was taken prison at some point, lived in Susa, and, and now she has an opportunity to become queen and to go live in a harem. And she couldn't really say no to that. Now, it was the custom of the day for people to go throughout provinces for the king to go look for beautiful women to bring them into the king. And the parents were supposed to see that as a great honor. Now, I don't know about you, I got two boys, all right? But I can't imagine them being carted off to be in some court and being say, this was a great honor that I was going to lose them to the king. So I can't imagine moms and dads, even back there, saying, oh, this is great, look at where my daughter gets to be. I don't think that can be in them. So I'm sure Mordecai didn't want to see Esther go. I don't think Esther wanted to go. It must have been scary. I'm not a young girl, but I can't imagine what that must have felt like. And yet, she had to go. She was in a life situation that wasn't of her own making. It was just life. In Esther chapter 2, we find this in verse 8. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, many young women gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's care. Esther was also taken to the palace, placed under the care of Haggai, who was in charge of the woman. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace, transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai had ordered her not to. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. Now, Esther was a young woman. My guess is somewhere around 15 or 16, but I really couldn't find anything to back me up on that. But just because of kind of what would go on at that time, I gather she was about that age. She wasn't married yet. She was beautiful, wise. She kept, was told by Mordecai to keep, don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. Keep it quiet. She learned the system. She pleased those who were in charge, and she got extra attention. She had seven servants to take care of her. Now, before you went to the king, there was a year of beauty treatments. So guys, if you were waiting for your wife to get ready today, just be glad it wasn't a year. Ladies are probably sitting there going, a year of beauty treatments? Let's bring it on, you know? Give me that time. Well, there she was. She had this year of beauty treatments, and the guy who was in charge of the women sees her and, and kind of likes her and thinks she's great moves her up the ladder a little bit, gives her a great place to be in the harem, a little special place, and kind of accelerates the process because he realizes every night there's a, a girl going to the king and the king could pick that one to be queen. So he accelerates the process a little bit for her. And we find out in chapter 15, it's Esther's soon-to-be time to be with the king. Chapter 2, verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's trusted official in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won approval in the sight of everyone who saw her. Verse 16. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the royal palace in the tenth month of 
in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other women. He placed the royal crown on her head, made her queen in the place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments, gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. So the king, he saw Esther, loved her, became queen. He put her above every other lady. And life goes on. Esther is now this Jewish lady who is now queen. But he didn't know that she was Jewish. Now it says that Mordecai, her uncle, still walked by the court to find out how she was doing. It talks about Mordecai being sitting at the city gate. The city gate was the place that you did business. So they gather, commentators have said, that even though Mordecai was a Jew, he was probably very learned, and he was used by the king to do his business. So there were some business matters. Now we find out that Mordecai was sitting at the gate during this time of Queen Esther's being queen, and he found out that there was a plot to assassinate the king. Well, what he does, he's still in contact with Esther. Even though Esther's king, she hasn't forgot about his uncle. And they pass some notes back and forth. They talk, and she, she is told about this report. Well, Esther, being t- she must have enjoyed the king and liked him and took care of him, she said, hey, there's an assassination of plot. The king looks into it, has the people killed, assassination plot is done, and then he forgets about Mordecai. He forgets that he even does this. Now we're introduced to another player in the game, and his name is Haman. Haman is the king's highest official. Now, Haman is an Amalekite. Now, the Amalekites and the Israelites have a long history, and it's not a good history. Everybody is supposed to bow to the Amalekite Haman who's in charge of all the king's business. Mordecai probably works for the king at one place, but he will not bow down to Haman. He will not bow down to Haman. Haman doesn't like this, and he decides it's time for the nation of Israel to be killed. We're going to just annihilate them. And so he casts lots to decide when is the right date. And so this is what he does. And we're in Esther chapter 3, in verse 7, it says this. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, pure, that is to cast lots. Lots were cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everyone else's. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. I will pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for the deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath the Haggite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do as you see fit. So the king agrees to this. Now, why does the king agree to this when he has, he has people in all kinds of different languages, all kinds of different ethnic groups living in his kingdom? And yet Haman, because of his hate for the Jews and his hate for Mordecai, who will not bow down before him, says, 
That's it. We're going to get rid of him. And the king goes, oh, okay. I don't care. Nah, keep your silver. I wonder how Haman, the worker for the king, got all that silver. Wouldn't you wonder that if you were king? I think I might. Somebody was working for me. And the king gets, here you go, here's the signet ring. Make it a law. It's done. So the date was figured out by casting lots. Well, Mordecai, because he works for the king, hears of the decree. And he knows that once the king's signet ring has been used, no one can change the rule, not even the king. Can't say, I changed my mind. Mordecai begins to mourn. Now, when you mourn, you know, what he would do is put on ashes, sackcloth, take off his clothes, rip his clothes off, and go sit in a public place. Everybody would know that you are mourning. You are upset. Esther hears that, he, she, that he's upset. So he sends, she sends off a messenger and says, find out what's going on with Mordecai. I hear my, my cousin is very upset. She was told of the ruling and is even giving a copy of the decree. And Mordecai asks her for help. Now, look in chapter 4, verse 8. We find this, and we find out what Esther's first response is. Chapter 8, it says, Mordecai also gave him a copy, that's the messenger, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering the destruction, the destruction of the Jews, so that Hathak, that's the messenger, might show it to Esther, explain it to her, command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for his people. Now, Esther's a pretty wise lady. She'd already become queen. She'd already kind of figured out that process. She was doing pretty well. It was about five years now that she's been queen. And she says, look, I, I can't do this. I can't, be, I can't go into the king. If I go into the king, I will be killed. The only person that could go into the king were those people who were summoned by the king. And she even says, the king hasn't summoned me for 30 days. Now, I don't know what their relationship was, but he didn't ask for her for 30 days, a whole month without, without the queen. See, she says, I can't do anything. That's what the messenger goes back to Mordecai. And then we find this reply. Mordecai says this to her in in verse 13. Mordecai told the messenger, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love Mordecai's faith here. You know, even though he, he was still in Susa, he did not go back when he should have gone back. For some reason, he was still there. He said, you know, if you don't speak up, God will still deliver his people. He will still liberate. He will still watch over. But you and your household, you're going to be gone. And she was the only person to ha- kind of continue her father's household name. Her family had all passed away. That was very important to them. Well, her second response is this. Esther now sends this response to Mordecai in in verse 16. Go and assemble all the Jews that can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him. After three days of fasting, Esther goes to the king. Can you imagine what courage it took to realize he hadn't asked for you in 30 days? 
if you go into his presence, he could just say, kill that person. You're not allowed in my presence. Anybody to go in. We find out in Esther chapter, on the third day, Esther, dressed up in a royal clothing, stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on her royal throne in the royal courtroom, facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she won his approval. The king extended the golden gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That sign meant you were okay. The scepter was listened to you. She passed. She was accepted in. What she had done was dressed up in all her finery. She was looking good. <laughs> she got into the back door. The king's throne was up here, and she just looked in and stood there. And his scepter was raised. She took the walk in, trembling and fearing, I'm sure. And then she touches the scepter, and he says, come on in. <laughs> and he says, what do you, what do you want? And she says this, I want to have a banquet. I want you and Haman, your second in charge, remember him, the guy who doesn't like Mordecai, her cousin? I want you to come in and I'm going to have a banquet for you. Come, come to a banquet tomorrow night. So what's the king say? Banquet sounds like fun, I'll go. And so that's what they did. They go to the banquet. So at the night at the banquet, the wine is flowing, good times are being had, the queen is there, the king goes, look it. Up to half my kingdom. What do you want to ask me? She goes, I want to have a banquet tomorrow night. Will you and Haman come to my banquet tomorrow night? He goes, and then I'm going to tell you what I want. Now, 24 hours have to go by before the king is told what she wants. Little intrigue is built, little mystery, little all that kind of stuff. Esther's a wise woman. She wants him to be relaxed, to be at the right place, to make a decision, to make a change. And she knows she's got to get him in the right frame of mind. Now, we don't have time today to take a look at chapter 6, the night between the two banquets, but check that out. It's between Mordecai and Haman, and Mordecai ends up being honored, and it's amazing. But take a look at that. But let's go on in Esther chapter 7, verse 1. This is the second feast. The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again, the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked, Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. It's kind of hard for me to figure out. He didn't want her around for 30 days, and now he's willing to give her to half the kingdom. So there must have been some kind of special relationship that they had, and it's kind of hard for us to kind of get into their mindset way back then and when. Queen Esther answered in verse 3, If I have obtained your approval, my king, and if the, if the king be pleased, spare my life. She doesn't say anything about the nation of Israel. She goes, spare my life. He's probably going, what are you talking about? Spare your life. This is my request. Spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold out to destruction, death, and extermination. Can you imagine? She's queen for five years. He's just finding out she's Jewish. He's just finding it out. For my people have been sold out to death, destruction, extermination. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent and not bothered you. 
If I was going to be a slave, I, I really wouldn't have bothered you, king. But I'm, I'm going to be killed. And the king is furious to know that he was used by Haman. Haman knew the whole situation. The king did not know again what to do. So he leaves. Haman is there. He hears all this that goes on. He starts to plead for his life with Esther. The king goes out. He takes some time. He makes a decision. He comes back. He decides Haman is killed for doing what he does. But the law cannot be changed. Mordecai is put in charge of Haman's estate. He's given everything that Haman had, all the riches that he had. It says Mordecai becomes in charge of Haman's estate. The king really has no, no concern about this law or about the Jews. He doesn't know what to do about it, has no clue. And he says, okay, Esther and Mordecai, you figure it out. You, here's my ring. Whatever decree you want to do, whatever rule you want to figure out, you figure it out. I don't know what to do. Chapter 8, verse 7 says this. King Ahasuerus says to, to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther. He was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. You may write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews. Seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name, sealed with the royal signet ring, cannot be revoked. Mordecai comes up with a solution that, well, we can't stop the killing, but we can protect ourselves. And so he allowed the Jewish nation to the remnant that was left, to arm themselves, to protect themselves, to gather together, and had the right to go and kill anybody and to take their wealth. And so that's what they did. Even to this day, Purim is celebrated by the nation of Israel. It happens one month before Passover, remembering the deliverance that came through Esther speaking up through the king and the protection that God gave them. Pure from talking from that idea that lots were cast to figure out the date that they were supposed to be killed. And it usually happens in March or February of our time. But God did intervene, and he delivered his people, even this remnant that in some ways weren't obeying God's rules. God still looked out for them. God spared them, and he used Queen Esther to spare them. Well, how do we, what do we learn from the legacy of Esther? I always like to leave us with some nagging questions, some questions to how can we act today? How do we take the story of Esther and, and use it when we're in, when life just happens? Now we can learn how not to act. I think we can look at the king and see uh, a king who does not respect his wife, doesn't know right from wrong, doesn't know how to make a decision or even when to make a decision, like don't make a decision when you had too much wine. That would be a good one, king. Or even who to take counsel from. Because some of his counselors, all they were worried about was what was their wife going to do when they got home. Well, how do we respond? Last week, we took a look at Ruth, and we saw that she did right. She took care of her mother-in-law, and God blessed her. When we look at the legacy of Esther, of doing the right thing, even when it could have cost her life. She said, if I perish, it doesn't matter. I will do the right thing. Now, granted, her first response is probably my response. I can't do anything about it. This is way too big for me. I, I can't do it. But then after prayer and fasting, she did that. And then we can learn from Queen Vashti. She stood up for what was right. She said, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be respected. Respect me. And she made that decision not to go. That cost her. Now, 
She may have been over in her corner of the castle going, yay, I don't have to be with the king. I don't know. But she made the right decision and took that stand. Esther was a wise woman. She listened to Mordecai. There was a time when she was supposed to keep quiet, and she did. There's a time for us not to speak. There's a time for us to speak, to know the difference. She took time to fast and pray, and she asked others to fast and pray when she had to speak up. Before she went to the king, she fasted and prayed. She asked God for help. Do we do that? Or do we try to do something in our own power? Or when we hear of something that we, the Holy Spirit is kind of nudging us and saying, you need to do something about this, do we just say no and put it off? Or do we take time to fast and pray? Thirdly, do we really know that God is faithful? Like Mordecai saying, hey, God's going to deliver his people. He's going to take care of his people. It might be through you, Esther, but if not, he still will take care of his people. I can't imagine what it felt like for Esther to kind of go through that process of not having her family around, going with a cousin to live in a new home, to then go to the king's harem. I, I can't imagine for a young girl what that was like. But she must have seen God's faithfulness and favor upon her. And yet, she was willing to take those steps to go to the king's throne and speak out. Do we trust and know that God's a redeeming God, that he is at work doing more than we think or ask? Do we trust that he will, when we take those first steps, that God will give us the strength to take the second step and give us his favor and show us what we should be doing? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways, he will guide you. He will direct your steps. He will direct your path. The faith faith that Mordecai had, that God will protect. Do we have that kind of faith? I love these verses from Jeremiah 29. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You know, as we sang earlier today, God knows us before we were born. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plan to give you a hope and a future. Do we have those plans? Do we know that God has plans not to hurt us? And I don't know about you, but uh, I was watching the Olympics Friday night, and I stayed up way too late. (laughs) And at the closing of the, the night, the Olympic committee head said this. He said, when we tell our children and our children's children, we want to be able to say that when our time came, we did it right. Now, he was speaking about the Olympic Games, that we did it right. But what's our legacy when we tell our children and our children tell our children, their children? What will be our legacy? Will the legacy be that we did it right, that we paid the cost, that we stood up? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your protection over the nation of Israel. I thank you for people like Esther who went before us and who took steps of faith and who stood up. And we can see that you were, you were faithful to her. You used her. And she took those timid steps in front of the king and spoke up for her people. Father, help us to do that this week. When life happens, it, it's beyond us. It's not our 
our cause. We, we didn't get, we're just in this situation when life just happens. I pray, Father, that we can take the steps that you, how you want us to act and to react, to take those times to pray and to fast, to ask others to pray and to fast, and to make good and wise decisions and good choices, not to react, oh, I can't do this, but to take those steps of faith to see your hand work. Because you are a redeeming God. And you redeem. And Father, you do more than we ask or think. I pray, Father, today that you would do that in our lives. And then it can be said that when our time came, we did what is right. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.